Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. everyone. It's Claire Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. So we are going to be jumping into our elections series. We're going to talk about why elections matter, why you need to vote, and things that happen behind the scenes that you might not really realize. And that leads us to our guest for today, who is Chris Tackett. He served on the Grand Barry ISD School Board and he has this mission to help people understand money and politics. Money is so huge when it comes to election. Money equals communication and communication equals votes. He tells us about how these two billionaires in West Texas, Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, have funneled millions of dollars into local races. And so few people know that this is happening. Nicole, what did you think of this talk? Well, you know how excited I was that we got the opportunity to talk to Chris Tackett. So everyone, I can't even tell you how much I've looked forward to this interview. I mean, he just really shines a light, right? He makes things clear that seem muddy and unclear and helps everyone to understand them. Also, he is an excellent follow on social media, on Twitter. He really takes the fight to the issues. He also has a great YouTube channel where he makes these videos that allow people to speak for themselves so that you as the viewer can make your own choices and decisions about what you're hearing people say. And again, I think that just highlights who Chris Tackett is, just a guy who is making the things that we wonder about and have unclear information about making those things clear and obvious. So enjoy. It's a great one. Yeah. And I'll just lastly add, Chris Tackett is one of those people who ran because he wanted to level up his public service. And he cares a lot about having a healthy democracy. And this is so important when we talk about elections, that we have good competitive races. And he shows how having these super rich billionaires very much goes against that and why we need to be aware of it. So yes, as Nicole said, this is a great listen and we hope y'all enjoy. Chris, just to get us started, we would love to know a little bit about you. Did you grow up in Texas? And how did you start getting a little bit more politically involved? Well, I'll say I can't claim being a native Texan because I was not born here, right? That's one of the rules. But my parents moved us here to Texas when I was in the fourth grade. So I'm pretty, have been here the better part of my life, went all the way through school here lived other parts of the country, lived in Canada for a couple of years, but came back in 2008 with my wife and two kids to raise said kids and try and be close to family because we've been gone for a number of years. And when we moved back to Granbury, Texas, in 2014, I made the decision to run for school board with the support of my wife, was fortunate enough to get to serve. I won the election. I served on the school board from 14 to 17. But while I was there, I really got a different sense of what was happening in the state and politically. Had a newly elected House representative, Mike Lang, in House District 60, which is where Granbury is a part of. 
had told us on the school board and the superintendent that he was a big supporter of public education, right? And we were said, hey, when you go to Austin, here's the things that we think you should look at and support. They will definitely help not only our district, but other districts around the state. And he said, yep, no problem. And then he got down to Austin and voted the opposite on every single one of those issues. So it got me digging in, trying to understand why. And to me, the obvious answer was money. So I went into the Texas Ethics Commission website, started pulling campaign finance reports, and saw massive amounts of money going to this guy from just a handful of people, mostly a gentleman from West Texas named Ferris Wilkes, who is featured very prominently in the CNN documentary, Deep in the Pockets of Texas. So as I figured that out, I started making pie charts to help it make it easier for me to understand, okay, how much of this is really coming from a handful of people, but also to help others. And so I posted it on Facebook, people saw it, and then started asking questions about, well, what about my rep? Because they're not supporting public education or all these other things either. So I started doing the research for candidates all over the state. And it eventually led me to creating a website, chrystackettnow.com. And I have continued since that 2016-2017 window, ripping the entire Texas Ethics Commission database, kind of repurposing it, putting it into a format where it's easier for me and apparently lots of other people around the state to leverage its bar charts, its pie charts, its graphs so that you can go in and search for exactly what you want and see who's really funding the politicians. And the other thing it does is it really helps you see very quickly what the web of money is, that there's a handful of people really pulling a lot of strings in this state. So that's kind of the abbreviated version of how I got here. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We definitely want to talk about your website and the CNN documentary, Deep in the Pockets of Texas, But just to rewind a little bit, I'm curious, with your family growing up, did you guys talk about politics? Would you consider your parents political because you went on to become a school board member, which is an elected office? We weren't really political, right? I mean, it was one of those, you hear the things you don't talk about religion or politics at the table. (laughs) I wouldn't say we were like hard and fast in that space, but politics wasn't really something we dove into. But it was one, I mean, I grew up with my dad coaching my baseball team and being involved. And so with my kids, I absolutely took that space. And when we moved back to Granbury in 2008, I was the coach of my son's team and my daughter's teams. I ran the local sports association for baseball and softball, was the president there for about five years. And to me, that service, right, not only to my kids, but helping other kids in the community. The transition to school board felt like a reasonable push. And between my professional space and the business world, and again, my love of helping kids, it felt like, ooh, this is a great place, a nonpartisan space that's about community. Going through that election, it kind of changed some perspective about the nonpartisan nature of elections, at least in modern times. Were you prepared for that or was that surprising? Oh, it was absolutely surprising because, again, we hadn't really paid that much attention to politics, right? 
I mean, we had lived away for a number of years. And so some of the local elements of things don't happen. We had seen the rise of the Tea Party locally, right, in Texas and, and across the country and seen that and been a little confused about some of the things that were going on. But it was one of those, it was like, that was all big politics, right? It wasn't local stuff. And so when I said I was going to run for school board, I very naively tried to schedule time to speak to all the various community groups in Granbury. It was the Optimist Club and the Kiwanis and all of these groups, including the local Democratic Club, the local Republican Club. And oh my gosh, the things you start to learn that are happening in the local politics as you go through that process. It was eye-opening. Was your run competitive? Like, what, what was that experience like when you decided, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and run for this position? It was myself and one other person. And after the fact, right, as you go through the election, the other person who was running against me was a really good guy who was trying to kind of do it for some of the same reasons I was, right? Wanted to contribute to the community. But it's one, the wife of a state senator who lives in Granbury had somebody pull my previous voting record and I had voted in a Democratic primary in 2012. And because of that, I was a bad guy. And this state senator's wife completely funded my opponent's race, gave all the contributions to him and tried to do everything they could through the party and others to um, really say some very not nice things about me, and including started running in what had been, again, nonpartisan races locally, right? School board, city council and things started running ads in the paper as we were getting ready that were not authorized by the candidate that said Republican for school board and, you know, his name and everything. And I countered with let's don't play politics with kids, right? And my opponent at that point, as soon as they started running ads in his name that were making it very partisan, he, he basically put his hands up and said, I'm not participating in this. So, I mean, big kudos to him because this wasn't what he wanted. It was the political, the local political machine trying to take over and run this. But I mean, it ended up, it was a 55-45 race in the end. And again, he and I talked at length after the fact about, look, we, we were trying to, again, just serve the community, right? The people we see at the grocery store, the people we run into at our kids' schools or our, the softball games or the baseball games. I mean, we were both trying to do it for the right reasons, but the politics on one side really overwhelmed things. But luckily, I got that opportunity to actually serve the community in that space. That is so fascinating. Now I understand why you say it was surprising. Because it sounds like that really just came out of nowhere. Talk about a political awakening that you may not have asked for, but here you are. I also really respect your opponent that you both remained true to your original reasons for even running. I love these conversations we're having because so much of my skepticism and cynicism is getting challenged for the best. And it's moments like that that really give me so much hope, right, that they're, I keep saying this, this happens every time, but people who want to serve the public exist and they are out here and they are running for offices. 
it just, yeah, gives me a lot of hope and optimism. It's going to be okay, but we also have to expose and shine a light. Yeah. Well, it's making me think. So when you started following the money, was that with your race or was it later on that you really started digging into the Texas Ethics Commission reports? It was really after. I mean, honestly, I did not know who was funding my opponent because I didn't even think to go ask for campaign finance reports. Because I mean, again, it was like, what the heck? It was only two years later that I was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and request those just to see what happened. Because again, it was two years later that I started digging into the Texas Ethics Commission Again, I knew I had to turn my stuff in when I ran for school board to the local district office, right? That's where I was turning in my campaign finance reports. At the time, I had no clue that those reports don't go to Austin and get loaded into a database, right? I just figured that's how it worked, right? You're running for a public office no matter what level and everything goes to a central spot. And so when I started polling from Austin, And you realize, okay, this is only state-level races. Anything that's local is actually maintained in these local spaces. That's what triggered me to say, well, I want to find my race and understand this. And I think that's one of the things people don't understand is if you want to follow money, there's different places you have to go to be able to draw a complete picture. Right. If you're talking about city council races, county commissioner races, basically anything that's county level or below, it's all maintained at those local spaces. And it's generally, if you're in a small community, it's absolutely not electronic. It's one that you've actually got to request via a public information request. You can't just hop on the website and pull it. And when you do get those, even from some of the larger places, It's not like an Excel type file where it's easy to manipulate. You're getting a scanned version of what was filed. So being able to connect dots and really seeing who's giving what, it's hard. It's easier at the state level, right? Because you can get an Excel sheet and start to run these things together. But following the money in this state, which also has no campaign finance contribution limits, it's crazy. We got to highlight this. (laughs) I'm going to repeat what you said because I want to make sure I'm actually comprehending. So statewide races, that information is shared with must be reported to the Texas Ethics Commission. So all of that is held in Austin and it is available electronically. Is that also true? Correct. Anybody can go search for it, whether it's, you know, the file or ID or the name, and you can find those reports. Now, they may not be shiny and pretty, you're also saying, right? Exactly. The information is there, but it's kind of raw data, let's say. But then for more local races, like you're saying, for trustees, for city council, that information is still kept at the local level. And by who? Which office? It's all about what the race was, right? So if you're talking about a school board race, the school district offices maintain it. If you're talking about a city council race, it's the city offices. If it's a county commissioner's race, it's the county offices. So somebody could be giving in all three of those spaces, but you would never know it because you're only requesting this candidate's reports, which aren't indexed. They aren't electronic in a database type format. So 
people can wade in to, with money in lots and lots of different places. This might be jumping ahead, but is there any legislation to change this system or any movement to make it easier for folks to understand where money is coming from? There has been some legislation filed. It hasn't gone anywhere in the last few sessions to try and put whether it's campaign finance contribution limits in place or centralizing all campaign finance records in one place. But I think the reality is the people who are in charge today, right, that control some of the levers of power in the state, they're really pretty okay with the way things work, right? So the idea that it's hard to follow the money, the idea that people can write a million dollar check if they want to, it makes it easier for them to do some of the things they want to do. It means you don't have to necessarily connect with the people you represent because you can get checks from all over the place. That may not be the people who live in your district, who may not be the kind of people who, again, when if you run into them in the grocery store, you would have any kind of connection with. So stuff has been filed, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. Well, maybe that will change <laughs> with the information that more people are hopefully getting about what's happening behind the scenes. So a phrase that you just said that stuck out to me was the people in charge and I wondered, who are these people in charge? Is it even our representatives? And I feel like that leads into the CNN special, Deep in the Pockets of Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about that special and the two people who are sort of at the top, maybe the actual people in charge? No, Deep in the Pockets of Texas is a documentary that CNN put together. It's an hour-long documentary that really dives into, well, if you've been following me on Twitter or Facebook or anything over the last few years that myself and my wife have been trying to yell about for a number of years. And there's not to say that we're the only ones, right? There's been lots of other people trying to highlight this, but it dives into not only what's been happening with money in Texas politics and that of two billionaires out of West Texas, Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, have very aggressively been investing millions of dollars in each electoral cycle in challenging and trying to get their people, right, elected to then really kind of advance their ideology broadly across the state. They put millions of dollars in, they win some elections, they lose some elections, but the whole time they're kind of moving the Overton window, right? That idea of the way we look at things, right? What's relative, pulling it further and further to the right. And the documentary does a really good job showing with the perspective of people who've been inside the Republican political machine and seen it to with how they've been kind of either marginalized or pushed to the sides because they haven't been doing what these two billionaires really wanted them to do. So it really gets to this idea of a handful of people who are really pulling strings on a lot of the politicians we see across the state. And it's not just them pulling the strings directly with the people they have. It's also impacting other legislators who will vote really the way they want them to vote. Maybe they're not told directly, but they know this is what the conservative space is looking for, because they don't want to get a well-financed challenger in a primary, right? So 
even though you have somebody who may not be aligned with the Wilkes Dunn group, they'll start to vote that way to avoid challengers as they go forward, which again, that moves our overall Overton window in the state into a much more conservative space. And what I did love about the documentary is it talked about not only the what, right, which is the money and the connections and such, but it dives into the why, which is some of the ideology that comes from these billionaires, right? And I think that's a really important piece. And for the folks as they watch the documentary, because I think it's such a well-done document, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? In an hour-long documentary, you can only talk about so much. There's so much more below the waterline that they haven't been able to dive into. But I hope as people see it, it makes them more open to listening to the rest of the story. So I can't recommend that documentary enough. Agreed. And for anybody who follows us on social media, well, on TikTok, well, I guess it went across all of our social media handles, talked about where you can find it because Chris has it available on his YouTube channel. Um, perhaps you're like Claire and you were able to find it on YouTube TV, but it can be found and we can help you find it if it isn't simple for you. There's something that you said that I'm hoping you can dig into a little more about. You talked about the tip of the iceberg. I'd be curious what else I think is, where are we going? Well, it's not only the ideology, right? Because that's the space that starts to get really scary on the why they're doing these things. But it's also that understanding that, and again, the documentary is really focused at the state level type races, but the reality is they are pushing, whether it's public education and school boards, city councils, county commissioner races, the ideology that's fueling all of this is one that aims to control all levers of government, right? So it's not just at the state house. It's not just at a federal level. It's also those races that, again, historically have been nonpartisan, but they want to control. To touch a little bit on that ideology that's mentioned in the documentary, it's Seven Mountains Dominionism. You may have heard Christian nationalism as a term that's leveraged. It was absolutely what fueled January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Well, Seven Mountains is really the engine behind it. And it's this idea that there's seven mountains or seven pillars of society. And if you can gain dominion, and again, it's a biblical term, right? Gain dominion over those seven mountains, you can take a nation. And when you start to dive into those mountains, I mean, it's the church, it's the government, it's the family, it's education, it's the media, it's arts and entertainment, and business, right? Those are the seven. And that philosophy is to drive control. It is to own all levers of power, not just at the top levels, but it's in all aspects of society. And so that's the push to get these people elected so that they can pass the laws via the government to impose their version of religion on everybody else. And you see it when you look at the public education space, the the push to ban books, the ridiculous CRT dialogue, which is really about, you can't talk about history and what really happened, right? 
it's this idea of, again, porn in libraries, bathroom bills, anti-transgender students being able to participate in athletic activities. I mean, it's all of these things come back to this push to kind of really devalue what we see for public education in people's minds to create fear so that they can start to deconstruct it. And again, it comes down to money. It comes down to this push for vouchers. It comes down to this push. They want the ability to indoctrinate kids in the way they talk about our schools or indoctrinating kids today, which is not true. But their real goal is that's what they're shooting to do in that one space. So that's some of the play in one of those mountains. Yeah, there's so much about this ideology that's very upsetting. (laughs) But the thing that makes me very frustrated is they want to prioritize these things that it takes us away from what really matters. Like Nicole and I recently read an article that the Texas Tribune put out about how rural Republicans are sort of holding back the floodgates for school vouchers and school choice. And they keep saying what we need to talk about is school safety, but we can't talk about it because somehow they're taking all the attention away. And it's so frustrating because it's like we have the grid that needs to be fixed. We have to fix our schools. We're losing our teachers. Our road systems aren't the best. And yet, what do we talk about session after session? Trivial things or harmful things at worst. And yet that's what's happening because as the documentary reveals, these two billionaires have had such influence and it's been very much in the dark. And we appreciate that you and other people are finally, it feels like getting some light on this so folks can know what is really happening. Do you really want this to happen? Because I don't think many of us do. And there's so many people who, hey, I don't want to talk about politics, right? I don't want to wade into this space or that space. And we're honestly at the point where if people don't start talking about some of these things, the things that you value in your life, the things that you want your kids to have, the opportunity, the diversity that many of us celebrate, some of those things will go away in a lot of the public spaces. And I think that's pretty tragic. So people do need to really plug in and start paying attention to what's really happening in our communities, in our state, and broadly in our country. Such an important point. I found myself as you were sharing with us about the Seven Mountains Dominionism philosophy, and I watched your video, which was amazing. So here's another plug for a Chris Tackett video. But here's what I really appreciate about your channel, which is that you don't put commentary over the information you present. You allow people to speak for themselves, which means me as a viewer, I get to make my own choices and decisions about what they're saying. And so that is just something that I really appreciate. That's one thing I want to say. I think I'm just trying to make sense of it in my mind still. It's like I can understand it on an intellectual level. But I think what I'm trying to understand is like, if I were a believer in the Seven Mountains philosophy, if that was kind of a rule that I lived my life by, I think I'm just like, I struggle. And I don't think anybody can answer this for me, but I just feel the need to kind of pause and say this. I just struggle with why there is the such a deep desire to impose that on others. And I get that that's just like, it's built into the philosophy, that it's sort of is part of the thinking that it is sort of your biblical duty to have dominion. That's part of what God has called you to do. Anyway, and then before we got on, Chris, I will also say I was watching another one of your videos, but it was, well, 
maybe I won't even get into the actual content of the video as much as to say there's this scarcity also like mentality underneath it all. I think that I find really disturbing, which is this idea that only a certain thing can exist, right? Like there's a very specific way of life that is endorsed by them or that is, you know, put forth by them. And anything that is outside of that specific way of life, there's no room for it, right? There's no like actual tolerance for anything that falls outside of this very specific way of living and philosophy. And that for me is the part that's the most upsetting and disturbing is just how narrow and specific and limited it is. And underneath it all is this idea that nothing else can exist because anything else takes away from their pie. It's a real killer for me. Right. And the reality is you've had groups that have been marginalized, right? People who have not had that equal seat at the table. And no one's advocating that someone has to lose their seat. It's just, let's make room for somebody else and somebody else's voice and somebody else's experience. I actually went and saw Beto speak in Fort Worth in this earlier in the week and at the end of last week. And I mean, he said, it's the philosophy we see from a lot of folks is you or me and rather than you and me. That truly resonated with me as I was thinking about the things that, that we've been trying to talk about and what you just articulated in what you've seen, right? It is very much a you or me. It is not someplace that they can make room for anything that is different. Yeah. Well, it makes me think in the documentary, there's a woman who's speaking and she is a theologian. And it's interesting because it comes down to theology, right? Like, do you believe in Genesis one twenty eight to be interpreted that we're supposed to have dominion over the earth and their sense of it, this domination? And she's saying, not necessarily. So it's so frustrating that their theology is leading our policies when not even theologians are on the same page with this issue. And we are like the ones at their mercy, it feels like. Without realizing it too. Sure. Because it's all happening behind the scenes where we don't understand who's funding the politicians, who's funding the PACs. I mean, one of the things that I always touch on when I do my follow the money presentations is until you understand that when you go through a primary cycle and you're getting 10 pieces of mail in your mailbox every single day, right, from all of these different groups, until you realize that it's the same handful of billionaires who are not only funding the candidates who are sending you stuff, but also funding the PACs who are sending you stuff, who are also on the board of directors of the nonprofit organizations who are sending you stuff, right? It's the same handful of people influencing so much of what we see in our politics in this state. And again, it's not just Texas, right? It's absolutely carried further, but it's one for a low information voter when they see all of these mailings come in from these groups that have these names that sound like something you would want. Responsible government, yes, we want this, right? Fiscal responsibility, yes, we should be fiscally responsible, right? Those kind of things. You can kind of get lulled into this space of, well, this is a candidate I should be supporting because look at how many others are supporting them 
when the reality is it's just the billionaires who have an ideology that they're trying to advance. So people don't know. Yeah, really incredibly smart. Yes, very skillful, right? To split that up into so many different entities that it does feel as if this is so much bigger than it really is. It's voices being converted into a chorus. It's just not real. That was probably my biggest takeaway from this documentary, because I had seen you speak and you shared a lot of this amazing information. I had no idea how coordinated it was with these two billionaires giving to things like Texas Right to Life, Texas Public Policy Foundation, the scorecard thing, Defend Texas Liberty. I was like, this is unreal. And it seems like you're saying on its surface to be just another group. It's a nonprofit. Okay. Like, wow, this person's really got support and money and I'm getting these flyers. Of course, I'm going to vote for them. But it's all smoke and mirrors. Right. They try and present themselves as being grassroots, but they're anything but. Yes. (laughs) So what do we do? That is the operative question, right? It all comes down to elections. It truly is about trying to make sure We've got people who believe in free and fair elections. We've got people who believe that a diverse society is a stronger society, who believe in public education, who, again, believe in LGBTQ rights, who believe in rights for the disabled, who, who believe in all of these things for separation of church and state. And this is where getting people to take the blinders off and really understand what's at stake, because all of the things I just rattled off may not impact everybody's life on a daily basis. But there's probably something there. I didn't even mention voting rights, right? I mean, that's something that's at risk too. In any of those spaces, we have to help people understand what's at stake and they have to show up in November. And then they have to show up in every election after that, whether it's local or not, right? Or it's a statewide or a federal to make sure that We're trying to put people in office who may not believe everything, right, that you believe. There's almost no perfect candidates, but trying to vote for people and help them move forward that will absolutely represent the community that they're supposed to be there for, whether it's a school board, city council, county commissioner, state rep, house rep, state senator, or the governor's mansion, right? I mean, we have to have people that truly represent us if we're going to continue and continue to grow as a democracy, representative democracy, whatever you want to call it, right? But we have to engage. And we're like, what, less than 90 days, I think, from the election at this point when we're recording this? It's now. I mean, we have to engage. Well, I was going to share with y'all. So when I was watching the documentary, one of the saddest moments to me, and there's a lot of them, because was when the screen would go to black and the text would come up and it would say, so-and-so is running in this election. They're heavily funded by Dunn and Wilkes, and they don't have an opponent. They don't have a challenger. So then if I was someone living in these rural areas seeing this documentary and I was like, well, I'll just vote for the other person. There is no other person in some cases. I mean, can you just talk about how that is damaging to our democracy? Well, in places like that, in the more rural spaces is where you especially see it happen. The activity isn't in the general election, right? It is only in the primary. And as we think about 
the redistricting process that we just went through. Which was sooner than it had to be, right? Sooner than it had to be, right. And we didn't have all the information. And there were questions, especially about Texas and the numbers and where things should have been. But they did go through and redistrict. And it was a very partisan push, right? Because there were a lot of districts across Texas that were competitive districts that were leaning toward purple to where, ooh, in the next cycle, you could absolutely see some seats flip. Well, districts were all drawn to basically maintain a status quo, right? So red districts got redder. They did draw blue districts bluer and created less purple, less swing type districts with the idea being, hey, as we go forward, we want to maintain control of those levers, right? For any of these House races, these state Senate races, as it translates to the U.S. House races as well, right? The congressional districts, it is maintain the hold on power we have. And so what that does is in your districts that are those safe red districts, like the one they talked about in the documentary, because it is so red, there's really not a chance for somebody who's a Democrat to win in that space. And when you can't win, it's hard to get people to motivated to run, right? To get the right people running for those. So it does take your politics ever further in an extreme direction because that's who's going to show up to vote. And that's the game that Dunn and Wilkes have played in very effectively over the last few years is taking those Republican primaries and making them more and more conservative, right, is the term they'll use all the way through. And so it absolutely hurts your democracy because you don't actually get a balanced set of ideas talked about by candidates. You don't give the community broadly the ability to participate and influence, right, who's going to be representing them because there's bad and worse become your only choices as you're going through this. So to me, actually creating competitive districts where we'll not be able to until the next census is completed, right? So we're eight plus years away for that next census starting. But competitive districts create dialogue in your communities, right? Where you will have what probably is the majority in most communities being able to make a real difference in that. And you hear young people talking about, well, it doesn't matter for my vote. There's no reason for me to vote. In certain districts, it's kind of hard to argue if you're talking about an individual race, because you can't make a difference. You either may not have somebody on the ballot who represents you from your party or otherwise that's out there. But I think that's where coming back to the issues that are at stake and understanding that whether it's a local election, right, talking about a school board or a city council, or it's the bigger races, right, the statewide, lieutenant governor, land commissioner, ag commissioner, governor's race, you can make a difference in those races. And it's only by electing some of the people at a statewide level that truly represent us broadly, will it enable us to get better people, more representative people running in these other spaces as well. Yeah, it's like I just want to highlight to anybody listening who would consider sitting out any election, 
that isn't the solution, right? No matter how defeated you might feel that your vote does matter. It absolutely matters, even when it doesn't feel like it. And we can't give up. Democracy is counting on every single person and every single vote. And just somehow finding a way to encourage people to run, even if they don't win. But I mean, you never know if we're going to win. So yeah, you might be surprised. Magic could happen. (laughs) I believe in miracles. And that's where finding good candidates who absolutely connect to their community should be supported, no matter which race they're running in. When you find good people, you support them and help them and shout their names from the rooftops in every single platform you have, whether it's online or in person. It's you run into somebody at the grocery store. Hey, did you hear about this person's running? They're really good. You should support them. And we all have to leverage our networks and no matter where they are to help these people make a difference. Yeah. And I think also reminding people that when you run, the win can be something outside from just getting that position. It can be like Dunn and Wilkes have figured out moving the conversation in the direction they want it to go. They have effectively done that by putting their money behind candidates who don't even win. I think their win rates like 50-50, but they're getting what they want anyway. They're getting people to move further and further to the ultra right. And I think if we remind candidates, you're going to have a microphone and that is so valuable. So if you can run for that reason, it could be worth just the effort you're going to put into it. And it will hopefully help your community for the better. I was just thinking about, yeah, how you said it so well, Claire, which is how can we redefine winning? And in this case, I don't even think what we're talking about is a conservative versus liberal kind of winning. I think what we're all touching on is a democratic winning with a lowercase d, right? It's what does a win mean in a democracy? And it means like having a conversation that is about issues that affect people. It means electing representatives who have your interests at heart and who will be responsive to you. That's what the kind of winning we're talking about, having the conversations that we want to have. Again, yeah, like you're saying, it doesn't have to mean that you win the office It can mean just at least having an agenda that is representative of the things that you care about and having conversations that matter to your community. So let's focus on that, right? Redefining what winning means, I think could be helpful. I know it's shifting my brain because that sense of defeat, right? If we could redefine like, no, 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 it wasn't a defeat if we got to talk about these things that haven't been talked about in forever. And maybe some of the smaller communities that or unopposed races, or whatever that picture could look like. So, Yeah, and I would speculate, too, that this is what folks like Dunn and Wilkes are relying on. For us just to get so tired of trying and trying and trying that you're like, I got to step out and take a break. And then what if no one's there to pick up the baton? Then it's really game over. So if we can just find other ways to have our voices heard, maybe that's the approach we should take until we can really find a way to change the system the way they have. So for some of our wrap-up questions, can you let us know what has been successful for you with your advocacy work? How have you managed to get people to listen to you? It is be very consistent with message over and over and over. Like I said, my wife and I have been beating this drum for, for a while now, right? A number of years. And there are times where it feels like you're screaming into the void. You're putting this messaging out there you're trying to help people understand, it will get frustrating, right? When you're doing the advocacy work, when you're trying to help people see things in a different way, 
sometimes it just takes time and it takes lived experience in many cases where somebody feels personally, ooh, now I've experienced this, Chris. <laughs> Let me have a conversation with you because I heard you talking about this before. Is this what this was? Right? So when you feel in your gut that something is right or something is wrong and you want people to hear about it, you have to be consistent in the way you're, you're talking about it. And you have to figure out different ways to try and present it. I will tell you the very first time I laid out the campaign information, right? The campaign finance numbers. I'm an Excel guy, right? So I had my spreadsheets, I had my numbers, and I showed my wife the numbers. And she's looking at this Excel sheet and it's like, dude, you're not helping me here. You're telling me this is awful, but I'm not seeing it. And it was translating those numbers into a pie chart that may, gave a visual, which is not the way I intuitively processed things, but it's the way she did. So it's figuring out what are the ways that you can share your message with people? How can you repackage your ideas in a way that may connect with someone differently? It is truly just that consistency of what we've done. I hate to say build a brand, but I mean, that's kind of where we've been because it has been not only the what is happening, right? That's the money, but touching on to the why. Look, I would love to say, hey, we, we talked about this and this thing went away and therefore it was a win and we didn't get any attention for these things. But because these bad things from our perspective continue to happen, it has helped others see it and they've had that lived experience and it has the things we've been talking about and other experts who we've learned from along the way. I mean, all of the work is being recognized, is helping people put into context the things they've been seeing happening all around them, the scary things going on. And that's where coming back to the documentary just for a second, I think what it did is distilled a lot of the things that we've talked about over the last few years into a single narrative that, again, it's not the whole story, but it's a big piece of the story that made it digestible to folks. And I think that was hugely important in helping that message get out there. When they reached out and said, hey, Chris, would you be interested in being involved in this? I was like, oh my gosh, this is because we had made enough noise for a long enough time Someone referred them to us and it helped to create a different platform and a different way to go about it. So, I mean, be the little engine that could, right? I mean, keep pushing, keep putting it out there because eventually somebody may notice and help carry your message even further. I love that. Just got to keep persisting. Great note. Yes. I'm making notes. Yeah. So do you have any final thoughts before we move into our last little ending segment? I don't think I do. This is one of those that this is going to be playing on my mind for the rest of the night. And I'm going to have all these things that I and then we'll probably text each will other. wish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> what we do. Back and forth. Back and forth. Okay, Chris. So before we let our guests go, what we like to do is our attention mentions, where we mention something that has our attention. So like a show or a movie or an article, something like that. I'll go first because like I'm dying to share it because it's so connected to what the work you do. I recently found this show. I don't know how I missed it last year, but Dope Sick on Hulu. Have you seen this, Chris? I have not seen it, but I've heard really good things about it. You got to go watch it. So it basically tells the whole story of how Oxycontin rose in the United States 
and the family behind it, the Sackler family. It was Purdue Pharma that created OxyContin and marketed it very aggressively, got many, many people hooked on it, addicted. I think half a million people have died from it since it rolled out in like 1996. But it's amazing because they put the pieces together and they show you how this family was so skillful at marketing this drug and making it seem like these other nonprofit entities were pushing the value of it. But it was really them behind the scenes funding these organizations. It was just incredible. So very much recommend Dope Sick on Netflix. So good. I was obsessed with it for a little bit. So when Claire said she was watching it, I was pretty excited. Do you have one, Chris? Well, I'll say the book that I've just finished reading, which again, it relates to all of this craziness that we've been dealing with. It's called The Flag and the Cross. It's by Samuel Perry and Philip Gorski. And it connects Christian nationalism broadly and the things that drive it using social surveys using real outcomes on what we've seen to, again, help drive context. And I think if anybody who's listening to what we've talked about here today is intrigued and wants to dig deeper into the science behind the realities of what we're seeing around us, that book is a really fabulous introduction, which, again, if what we've talked about is piques your your interest, go look up The Flag and the Cross, because it does draw these connections between the things going on in the Trump presidency, the things that we have all as people who care deeply about our communities have mobilized to go push back on. It puts real research type information behind it to really show you the root of the rot that we see happening in these places. It's really this idea of Christian nationalism and the fact that these things that we're all fighting, they're the, the weeds that come out of this one root. And with until you understand that all of these things are being driven by different fragments of the same ideology, it's hard to go fight. So it definitely will help people understand the mountain we're up against. But until you understand it's a mountain, it's hard to go fight. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you could get exhausted, right? Because you'll be exhausted finding that little bitty thing when you're not really focused on the bigger. Absolutely. So I can't recommend that book highly enough. Okay, very cool. I wrote it down, but it also will be in our episode description. I'm going to take it in a totally different direction, y'all. I'm going to bring the lightness and the mindlessness. I have been watching The Bachelorette. They have two this season, which is a little bit chaotic and crazy. There are more tears than I think I've seen in a while on that franchise. But it is mindless and it is just a relaxing time when you just need to like step out, step out of the craziness. So I've been watching The Bachelorette. You can watch it on ABC or you can watch it on Hulu when it streams the next day. I'll say The Great British Bake Off is that show for me. (laughs) I hear good things about it. My family watches it. It's actually I haven't seen it with them, though. They're so polite and happy, even when the horrible things are happening in their kitchen in front of them. So. Our brains need the time to just ah, let it go and then get back up to fight. 
Well, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. We really appreciate you chatting with us and sharing more about your journey with your advocacy and the incredible documentary that you are part of deep in the pockets of Texas. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Let us know what you think and follow Chris on social media to learn more. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.